Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, reading from chapter 26, verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. All of us as uh, Christians uh, fail in different venues of life uh, regarding our testimony to the Savior. In the spiritual realm, uh, failure can be a challenging issue for uh, not only the one who is in retreat, but uh, for the church. Uh, But the hope of the gospel is that the failure of Christians is uh, never final. That it's going to occur is uh, certain, uh, because we are fallen creatures. There's another reason that failure is certain, and that is uh, prophetic announcement of our Lord, but it's a reminder of the greatness of the gospel that failure for the true believer is never final. It's only temporary. And that is because and solely because of our shepherd, that he is the entire difference uh, that keeps us uh, from uh, final and irrevocable failure. Well, we encounter this reality in the first part of our text, namely Jesus foretells the falling away of his apostles. Uh, The picture before us, again, is uh, his immediate disciples, men who have followed him uh, throughout his, uh, his earthly ministry. And on the brink of uh, the cross, he announces that they're all going to fail him. Thankfully, again, it's not the total picture. Jesus announces prophetically that all of them will fall away. Uh, The word to fall away is literally to stumble. It is from this word that we have our English word to to scandalize. And of course, when a Christian retreats from the faith, it is a great scandal. It's also a challenge. Uh, For example, the word of our Lord in Luke chapter 12 says, uh, those, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before God in heaven. That that makes failure a very difficult thing to reckon with. Uh, The immediate tension, of course, is much more intense, and uh, that is the betrayal of Judas. So what's the difference between the betrayal of Judas and the betrayal of, of the other 11? It's a difficult tension. 
Of course, uh, the failure of Judas is permanent and irrevocable. Will the eleven join him? Let's uh, expand on this notion of failure. Uh, the basis of uh, the announcement that they're all going to fall away and the reason for their failure is the citation from Zechariah chapter 13. If you have your Old Testaments, I trust you do. I uh, encourage you to turn to the 13th chapter, book of Zechariah. Because Jesus will use uh, verse 7 of this text as uh, the basis for his announcement of their falling away. Uh, the immediate context of the 13th chapter uh, is uh, that of the failure of uh, the nation and a resurgence of apostasy related to their rejection of God as shepherd and their desire for bad shepherds to rule over them. Uh, it's a very difficult text because, uh, in a sense, God is saying, oh, you don't want my shepherds and I'm going to give you bad shepherds. Uh, we sometimes think that spiritual living is a neutral event. We can do what's right, and if we don't do what's right, it's no big deal. It's simply neutral. We can return if we want to. But uh, the irony is that every time you make a bad choice, and of course, choosing bad shepherds is one of the worst choices you can ever make in life, uh, then again, God's going to appoint those shepherds to rule and to shepherd your soul unto an end that you really know not of. Uh, the totality of the consequences. Uh, some decisions in life are irrevocable. Judas has made such a decision. What about the decision of the eleven to fall away? Uh, but chapter 13 begins with the hope of the gospel in a purging and refining of a true remnant out of the visible community of the people of God. It's really true in the church today that the church is a visible community, but within the visible community, there is a righteous remnant. And sometimes uh, uh, that righteous remnant is going to fail. And so what's the answer to that failure? Well, the answer is Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Well, on that day is a prophetic announcement. That day has come. Christ is going to the cross. He's going to fill the fountain with his own blood to cleanse his people from sin and impurity. So, the prophetic reality, the end-time reality of that announcement is about to dawn in Christ going to the cross. He's going to again fill the fountain with his own blood. And so that God is going to begin this uh, great day of announcement uh, by striking the Messianic shepherd. And this brings us to the citation, Matthew, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. Let's read the text. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hands against the little ones. It's the reason Jesus can prophetically acknowledge that the eleven are going to fail and fall away because it's prophetic fulfillment. It's very interesting that the Masoretic text 
has the imperative awake. God is commanding the sword to go strike his shepherd. It is our reminder that God is sovereign over the worst event of all of history and civilization, the striking of the shepherd upon the cross. He is commanding the sword. He is in complete control of what is about to happen. In Matthew, we change from the imperative to the first person singular, I will strike, that God the Father is beginning the end time separation of a true remnant by striking his son. Zechariah reads, my shepherd and the man who is close to me. It's the reality of the intimacy between God the Father and his appointed shepherd. The irony, again, is that God is wielding the sword, striking his own shepherd. Uh, in my own mind, it's a judicial act within the context of purging the visible community. And that purging is now going to begin with Christ upon the cross. And that purging is the basis for a refined remnant linked to atonement and propitiation, again, which is going to occur upon the cross. But the cross is going to begin the end-time fulfillment of dealing with sin and separating out a righteous remnant. Again, from Zechariah, we read the phrase, close to me, that can also be translated neighbor. It's very interesting uh, because it's telling us that Christ is the neighbor of God the Father, if you will, literally at his side, and therefore co-equal with him. For who can be close to God but God himself? Who can be close to God the Father but God the Son? It's exactly what the prophet is telling us. It is, of course, a reminder that in terms of the redeemed community, it begins here. There is no other way of redemption in all of the world. We live in a world of 10,000 religions, of thousands and thousands of denominations. But in the final analysis, and really the only analysis, God awakes his own shepherd and strikes his shepherd to purify a righteous remnant. And there is no other way in all of the other religions of the world to be a part of the righteous remnant other than the true shepherd of God. And that's going to become very, very important in light of the fact that we as a company of the redeemed of God are sometimes going to fail him. And so what is the difference between our failure and the failure of Judas? Well, the answer, of course, is the shepherd. Uh, I'm not remiss to remind you that we are awash in our culture with many roads to the castle. But if you understand our Lord's citation from Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7, the answer is, awash though it may be, but for the people of God, there is only one shepherd and one way to be close to God, and that is through his appointed designated shepherd. If you're here this morning and you are under the illusion that you can come to God because of your own good works or because of some other religion or some other founder, you need to reread this text. God is going to strike his designated shepherd to affect 
the purity of his people. Any other way is the way of irrevocable failure. It's the way of Judas. It's the way of final ruin. For us as Christians, it's the gospel. That we have a shepherd that's been appointed and designated by God, totally qualified because he is God himself. And therefore, while we will fail in time, we will never fail in eternity. And our failures, though scandalous on occasions, are never final because of the shepherd appointed to lead us and to guide us. The immediate result, of course, of the striking of the shepherd is, as our Savior acknowledges, is that the flock will become leaderless, leaderless and will fail. Uh, it's the reason that Matthew states that uh, they will fall away. Contextually or specifically, they fail to grasp the significance of the suffering that is about to break upon Christ. And in their confusion about what is happening, they will retreat. It is a wonderful application, I think, of the importance to give your life over to the systematic teaching and reading of the Word of God because it brings clarity to our hearts and minds of who Christ is and what He means to His people. Now, the use of the Old Testament here, of course, is direct prophetic fulfillment, which identifies Christ as the divine and only agent of God. And it is through Christ that he's going to purge the nation and create for himself a righteous remnant. But he begins the purging with his own son. It's the reason they scatter. And from the son, God moves to the many sons. If you have your finger back in Zechariah, let me read the text. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. So wonderful uh, reminder of this from the Apostle Peter, First uh, Peter chapter four, in the seventeenth verse. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Uh, that God begins with the purging of his people. He starts with his people and purges out those that are false, refines his own. It's very interesting that the judgment begins with the church. Someday it will break upon the entire world. And it is a process that begins with Christ, the Son of God. And to a lesser degree, it will befall all of the people of God. And so that's why Jesus announces failure. At a point in time, they're going to become confused about the cross and what has happened to them. And what do people do when they get confused? They retreat to their old way of life. They're going to try to go back and become fishermen or whatever it is that they were doing before God called them through Christ to follow them and become fishers of men. 
sometimes we do that. We encounter extreme difficulties in life, and what do we do? We just shift back to our old way of life. The apostolic company is going to try to do that, but something radical is going to happen to them that interdicts them. And so let's move from failure to recovery. Beyond foretelling their failure and their falling away, Jesus announces their recovery. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 32. But after I have arisen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. In the context of Zechariah, it's a purging of the false from the true. Read to you verses 8 and 9, Zechariah 13. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire, and I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is our God. So again, there's going to be a refining of the nation, according to the words of the prophet Zechariah. Two-thirds are going to perish in that refinement. One-third is going to come through successfully. By citing Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7 and Matthew 26, our Lord is bringing the entire context into the verse, meaning that that time of purging is starting with Christ and will soon break upon the entire apostolic company and eventually turn upon all of us to refine us, to purify us, in the metaphor of the refining of metals like silver and gold. And Matthew's use of the prophet means that the process has begun in him. I believe it's a reference to the end time tribulation. Uh, on that day, the prophet begins. That day is beginning in Christ. Uh, but notice, notice the recovery. Jesus announces his own resurrection, and that he will go ahead of them into Galilee to interdict them from returning to their old manner of life. He announces their failure. This is announcement of recovery. And the difference is Christ, their shepherd. Again, the process begins with Jesus, will befall the entire apostolic company. It's a decisive prediction. I, if you think about this, Jesus says he's, uh, he's going to die, but he's going to overcome and defeat death. After I have arisen, it is a prediction of unparalleled precedence. It means that he is the Lord of life, that death will strike him, but only temporarily. It will never hold him cannot hold him because of who he is. That Jesus will not fail. He's going to overcome the sword. I remind you of one of the great applications of this reality and this decisive prediction. Christ is the only shepherd beyond the grave because he is the only shepherd that has conquered death. At the grave, all other shepherds turn back. No other shepherd 
and all of the religions of the world can lead you beyond the grave save this shepherd. Again, if you're not a Christian, you have some shepherd, I don't know who or what it is. But you must reckon with the acknowledgement of Christ and his resurrection. It breaks upon the church in the decisive reality because we are in him. He will resurrect all of us. The grave cannot hold us. It cannot ultimately defeat us. We will, too, overcome the sword because Christ has overcome it for us. Again, the only shepherd beyond the grave. There are thousands and tens of thousands of acknowledgments of life in the culture we live in. Only Christ promises and delivers forever. No other shepherd can promise and deliver forever but Christ. The promise again extends to interdict them before they get back to Galilee. It's the basis of our recovery. It's the only reason that the 11 will be recovered because of Christ, their shepherd. Again, think of the immediate context. They will recover, but Judas will not. He's numbered among the two-thirds that will perish. And I, by way of application, the sifting continues today. That all of life is a sifting process. The visible community and company of the people of God being tested. Two-thirds being cast off and one-third being refined as gilt, silver, and gold. Some recover, others do not. Our loyalties are tested and sifted. Uh, we sometimes encounter great difficult exigencies in life, and they break upon us sometimes in cataclysmic ways. What's different between us and the two-thirds, what is different between the apostolic eleven and the one, is the shepherd. It's the only difference. that he will secure his people. In the final analysis, they will not fail because he will recover them. In the final analysis, they cannot be lost because he is their shepherd. Therefore, whoever is lost is lost because Christ is not their shepherd. I know that we live in a world different systems, uh, different people promising to be shepherds. Apart from Christ, it is all a lie and grand illusion. And if you're not in Christ, ultimately you will fail. If you're in Christ, you're going to stumble, you're going to struggle, but you cannot be lost because he is your shepherd. He will ultimately interdict you and recover you. Because of Christ, our failures, scandalous though may, they may be, are never final and are never fatal. It's the reality that with the striking of the shepherd, there's a formation of a true remnant of the people of God. In Zechariah, two-thirds perish, and of the one-third, God says, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. This is, uh, as you know, new covenant language that God is starting over. 
Ethnic Israel is being shunted aside. They're numbered among the two-thirds. But out of that company, God is refining a people for himself. He makes them his people, and his people call him as their God. The only way to be numbered among the true people of God is with Christ as the great shepherd of the sheep. Christ is going to fulfill the new covenant. He's going to seal that covenant with the shedding of his own blood and make us his people. We call upon him and he answers. We are his people and he is our God. What I'm attempting to say is that in Jesus Christ, we have the essence of the gospel. The gospel means rescue and recovery. Outside of him is a howling wilderness and utter ruin. It's to be numbered among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the lawyers of Israel. It's to be numbered with Judas himself. Remember my uh, first assignment in the army was, uh, as in most institutions, uh, uh, time of education is called a basic course. Uh, there were a number of, uh, of uh, veterans uh, in my uh, platoon. One of them was a uh, helicopter pilot. Uh, and he flew uh, uh, medevac missions uh, for people, soldiers that were wounded in the field. Uh, medevac pilots uh, you know, exposed themselves to great danger. Uh, to rescue a soldier that was wounded. Uh, Christ and the people of Christ sometimes get wounded. Uh, he comes to rescue them. Uh, he mounts his own search and rescue missions. In the Air Force, uh, there are pilots that so train to engage in such missions. When an uh, aircraft uh, goes down, uh, pilots lift up and, and big helicopters and specially trained crews go to rescue the down pilots. Uh, themselves are great heroes because uh, uh, they sometimes uh, stop and they hover uh, while devices are lowered to the earth to recover the pilot. Imagine you're almost like a sitting duck and that's really what they are. But that's what Christ does. He comes always to rescue his own and to recover them and none are lost who are in Christ. There's something of this in uh, the words of the Apostle Peter, uh, chapter 2, in verse 25. Really encapsulates the falling away of the sheep from Zechariah and from Matthew 26. 1 Peter chapter 2 and the 25th verse, For you are like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the bishop of your souls, the guardian of your souls. What brought us to return? The shepherd, the bishop, our overseer, who watches over our souls, who will not permit us to fall away, who will interdict us in his sovereign and powerful grace. One of my favorite uh, chapters in all of the Bible is John chapter 6. If you have your New Testament, I trust you do. I encourage you to turn to John chapter 6. 
a verse that I suspect is very familiar to all of you, the 39th verse of the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. It's the greatest transaction in all of life. God the Father gives to the Son the one-third to die for, to keep it to preserve, and they cannot be lost. There are occasions in life where they're going to stumble and fall, maybe retreat for a season, go on sabbatical, but none are ever lost because he will interdict them and keep them and preserve them. That's one of the greatest promises in all of the Scripture. Who can say none are lost? Only Christ can say that because he is the shepherd and the guardian and the bishop of their souls. I mean, I might ask you as a Christian, maybe a professing Christian, who is the ultimate shepherd of your soul that keeps you from finally and irrevocably ever falling away? It is Christ and Christ alone. He is the difference between the 11 and the 1. He is the difference between the one-third and the two-thirds. Christ, the shepherd of our souls. Again, to repair to the sad reality of our culture. Many shepherds, but there's only one who loses none of those given to him by the Father. That in eternity past, God elected his people in time, gives the elect to his son. And even when they are scattered, they will not be lost because he is their shepherd. None are lost. I've known lots of followers of lots of different religions in my life who follow their own leaders for a season, but as well, many fall away. It can never be said in the church that our falling away is only temporary. It's only for a season. None are lost because of him who is the shepherd of the sheep. The majesty of Christ, the only qualified shepherd who loses none that the Father gives him. It's an illustration of this in what is known as our Lord's high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, verse 12. While I was with them, Jesus is praying to God the Father. He's saying to God the Father, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. One was lost, but that was his appointed end. The name Judas was never given to Christ, and so he was lost. Again, it's a reminder that the final difference between ultimate success and ultimate failure is the shepherd of the sheep appointed by God the Father. Again, if you're not a Christian, I simply call upon you by the word of the scriptures to come to Christ because outside of him, there's irrevocable loss, irrefutable failure, 
a failure so deep that it will last forever and there is no occasion for recovery. Sometimes even the confessional church says that there's occasions for recovery, as in purgatory, praying for the dead. There's a number of, of monotheistic religions that hold to praying for the dead. I do not believe in praying for the dead because of the words of the writer, the author of the book of the Hebrews. It's appointed to man to die once, and after that, the judgment. So churches pray for the dead. I don't. I pray for the living, that Christ might be their shepherd. I remind the living that every other shepherd will turn away from the grave because they cannot defeat the grave only Christ has. I invite the living to come to the one true shepherd appointed and designated by God the Father. Outside of him, it's utter loss. Peter and the others deny our Lord's assessment of their failure. It's a good reminder of the vanity of our own pride, is it not? But he affirms it in verses 33 to 35. Peter promised, I'll never fall away. I don't care how bad it gets, Lord, I'll be there for you. I understand that. He says, he says to the Lord, uh, I will absolutely not deny you. In the Greek text, it's a double negative. We translate it differently, but I will absolutely not fail you, Lord. The others chime in, but they're all going to fail. Prophetic fulfillment validates the sad reality. But I think there's a lesson here in application for all of us. We need to see a measure of ourselves and Peter and the others. Uh, sometimes we speak from pride. And the sifting sometimes can be very, very intense. The only difference between us and the two-thirds, between us and Judas, is Christ the shepherd. Isn't that the reality of uh, the prayer our Lord taught us to pray? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a great prayer. We ought to pray it early and often. Because only God can protect us from the ravages of temptation and effect a final deliverance from evil. Places us in a gust company, does it not? The great lesson of the scriptures is that men, the people of God, sometimes fail. Abraham. Abraham had this very difficult time standing in the presence of Pharaoh and telling Pharaoh that his wife was his sister. He's going to hide behind his wife. Does it a couple of times. The Lord taught him and recovered him. Elijah. Elijah has this incredible expression as a hero in calling the nation away from idolatry. And then Jezebel raises her ugly head and he retreats and runs away, scared of Jezebel, when God has shown him this marvelous miracle of the raining of fire from heaven. But we do that. We, we know the miracles of God. We've experienced the 
reality of our baptism. We've partaken of the sacraments, but sometimes we cower in the presence of the world. Elijah did. And even Moses failed. But to say nothing of David, what's the difference between these men and their failures? And the two-thirds in Judas, it's their shepherd. Their shepherd who is Christ. We falter and fail. Our Savior does not. Our failures are never final and never fatal. But it is a good reminder to be very careful about uh, making promises. Particularly in light of the end-time purging of the visible community of the people of God. The end-time sifting of the one-third and two-thirds. Because we're all capable of breaking I've come to the sad reality in my own life that at any given point in my own life, in the midst of the perfect storm, any of us can break. So we ought to walk not in pride, but in incredible humility, uh, walking close to the scriptures, uh, walking near to him who is our great shepherd. And sometimes the perfect storm comes, and God will be with us uh, through all of it and preserve us to the end. There's something of this in the words of the Apostle Paul to uh, the church at Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 to 13. Uh, The Apostle has been reminding of the failures of uh, Israel in the wilderness. Uh, By the way, they too were sifted, were they not? And only a small minority entered the promised land. First Corinthians chapter 10, reading verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's a reminder to Peter, a reminder to us, be very careful lest we fall. Because of the examples in the past of so many that have fallen, Let's walk in incredible humility, close to our Redeemer, submissive to the Word of God. And then look at the promise in verse 13. No temptation has seized you except that it is common to man, and God is faithful who will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can escape from it. It's a testing of the remnant. And reminding us that the difference between us and the two-thirds, the difference between us and Judas is the shepherd who keeps and preserves his own. I love the phrase in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful. Perhaps I'm speaking to someone this morning who's going through a very difficult time in life, struggling over some issue that they don't think they're going to overcome. The Bible says God is faithful. That testing and the faithfulness of God go together and they cannot be separated. They are inseparable. That God will test his people. God will sift us and refine us and he will be faithful in the end and bring us through it safely. Many people in life give up. 
we ought not because of the faithfulness of God. I bring that to your remembrance that testing and the faithfulness of God go together. He keeps us and preserves us. So the promise here in our text is twofold. We falter, and Jesus never fails us. He loses none given to him by the Father. He recovers all his own. He interdicts us. It's a great hope in the measure of the preaching of the gospel. For the righteous remnant, testing and recovery go together. And the success of our shepherd is the difference. Our ultimate success.